Would you open God's precious holy word to Deuteronomy 4? We've come to verse 15. Still in the first lecture, first message of Moses to the people, to that generation that will enter into the Holy Land. He's mostly through now with the historical reflection and he's into the admonition of uh, what the people, how the people should live uh, with regard to what they will face as a people and who they are as a people. So here we are. We're going to be in verses 15 through 31, but it's in two parts. The first part, Moses is admonishing the people with regard to preventing idolatry. This is the great sin because idolatry is caused by a plethora of things, all of which come to rest on a false worship. We are created to worship our creator. The particular people of God, of course, are to enter into praise to our creating, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, all-powerful God. Worship comes from a word that means worthiness. To express then in worship is to express that there is no higher worthiness than that which is God's. And there is only one God. So idolatry addresses those things that take the place of God, the true and living God. And it means that to the worshiper, worshiping idols, idolatry, is a confession from within the worshiper that something has a higher worthiness in the worshiper's life than God Almighty. Of course, that can't be true in the hearts and lives of God's people. Nothing can be higher or have a greater priority in our lives than God and who God is, what he does for us. And then it behooves us to learn more and more about him and to experience him, to watch him as he cares for us in every aspect of life. Very important lesson then for these who are the worshipers of Yahweh as they're on the brink of crossing the Jordan and taking the land of Canaan, the promised land, something that no other of Abraham's descendants have done. It is now falling upon them to do this, but still they must remember and be taught. Very important lesson here. Number one, how to prevent idolatry. Well, you start out by remembering the divine origin of the law. 
for us today, of course, that would be all inclusive of the word of God. The word of God is divine. It comes forth from God. It is God breathed. It is God inspired. Whatever is said is the word of God. There is no higher word. What they had in their day was the law, the Torah, the law of Moses. So to prevent idolatry, number one, stay in the word of God. Remember the divine origin of the law. And so he says in in verse 15, you shall watch yourselves. First word in the Hebrew, the the root word is shamar. And uh, uh, it's shamar, there are shamars across the law and found in other places as well, but it's the warning from God. It's a, it's a caution. It, it's, it's a mild warning. Watch yourselves. Take care. Watch yourselves very well. For you did not see any image on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire. So the first illustration here in what Moses is saying in this particular context is that the word of God is fire. It is absolute. You can't dabble with it. And it comes forth from Yahweh. If you try to mess with it, it'll burn you. The only thing you can do is accept it. So the word of God, and more, con- more concisely in this text, context, the law, the Torah, which is the beginning of our Bible, understand that the word of God comes from the midst of the fire. This is the presence of Yahweh speaking forth from himself. His word is absolute and true and cannot be trivialized or trifled with. This is the word of God. So remember, number one, if you want to avoid idolatry, if you want to maintain pure worship that is pleasing to God, number one, you remember the divine origin of his word, namely in this case, his law. Secondly, or well, I thought, yeah, the description of idolatry is now in verse six. What is what is, what is idolatry? How shall we consider? So he's very careful. The people have no excuse as they go into this land, understanding the description of idolatry. Here it is. And you'll notice I have certain, mostly the word likeness here is in red. Lest you become corrupt and make for yourselves a graven image. That means that the, a graven image means that it's, it's been made by man. The representation of any form, first of all, any form of a human, the likeness of a male or a female. Moving on from there, the likeness of an animal, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the heaven, the likeness of anything that crawls on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And lest you lift it, not just, not just uh, 
in the form of a man or in the form of a beast, but in the form of anything or with any idea that anything in the created heaven can be worshiped. Unless you lift up your eyes to heaven, see the sun, moon, and stars, all the host of heaven, which Yahweh your God assigned to all peoples under the entire heaven to be drawn away to prostrate yourselves before them and to worship those. I've, I've, you know, before Yahweh called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abram was a, a worshiper of the moon god. I think tonight is a full moon. I'm not sure it looked awfully full when I came from the office into here. But as soon as it's full, it stops being full. It starts disappearing, right? And then it disappears and then it's nothing. It's not there. Then it starts reappearing again. And it grows and grows until it's a full moon. It goes over and over and over throughout the time of man. I've often thought, what, what is it that he got out of worshiping the moon god, representative of something that is completely evident, just, just a space of time, one day a month, and then it begins to disappear, showing some kind of, that something is in control of it, and then it begins to reappear Worshiping the moon god, that's just a, an example of how silly it is uh, to worship the sun, the moon, the stars. I, I'm, I'm uh, overwhelmed. I'm taken aback by the things that are being revealed through the Webb telescope. I really enjoy looking at that stuff because it just simply reminds me of the greatness of God and the, the smallness, the the tininess of man. The psalmist asked the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him. Written by a shepherd boy who spent many a nights out in the pasture lands and grazing lands just laying on his back looking up at the vast starry skies of heaven at night in an era when there would have been no man-made light to interfere with what he was looking at. And his imagination would run away with him, I'm sure. Knowing that God had created all these things and then here he was, a speck of nothing in the middle of a big area of land and that area of land was still nothing compared to the rest of the world. The world is nothing compared to the rest of the galaxy and the galaxy is nothing compared to the rest of the galaxies. He couldn't have known those things, but those things have been revealed most recently. I have seen, uh, so they say, I guess they, according to red light wavelengths and all this kind of stuff, they have a way of measuring things out there in space, they say. And galaxies have been found. One I saw that was 25 uh, 25,000 25, times the size of our galaxy, or it may have been 25 million, I don't know, who cares. Uh, but it's way out there, and it, and it would just swallow up our galaxy. And, our, and you know, I've seen, if you've ever seen, 
I don't know who in the world went out there and looked back and took a picture of our galaxy. I've tried to figure that out. But here's a picture of our galaxy, they say. And then there's so many things. And the speck that is our solar system is just so small, you can't really make it out as a definite speck. It's just in there. Our solar system, just a speck with all this other stuff around it. Now then our galaxy is just a speck within other galaxies, apparently, that have been discovered by this, by this you know, telescope. When you think of all of that, you have to think of the greatness of God. And the only reason those things were made, <laughs> if I, to read Genesis correctly, was so that number one, we could know what the weather's gonna be, or number two, to know where we were any point in time. You can gain your direction by looking at it. All that made just, just for this. So then, why would a person worship that sort of thing? That which the creator had made when you could offer your worship to the one who made all that stuff. And he is only one, the great almighty God. So idolatry is a grievous sin. It strikes at the heart of a jealous God who, who would consider that I mean, he is, we cannot know completely and absolutely the greatness, greatness of God. We're in, we're in, well, we're in four dimensions if you count plasma, but we're in three dimensions of space and of, of space, one dimension of time. Um, God created all of that and he is so much more than what he made. Belonging, and I'm not, man-made words cannot be applied to God. We call him infinite, but that's a man-made word. It's more than infinite. It's greater than infinite. It's greater than great. There is no word from the human lips that can be applied to God except the word that he would put in the mouths of his prophets and apostles. And he allows those, well, you can think of me like this, but you will never exhaust the completeness of the person of God because it's imp when, you're in, when you're in the time-space continuum that he created, unless we look to the one who made it and accommodated himself to it, namely God the Son, Jesus Christ, there is no knowing God other than by the way God designates. And we can know him this way. So here's the point against all of this. Why would you want to worship something that the greatness of the majesty has created? Even stars that seem to, to go infinitely. I mean, this, this, uh, this new telescope, Webb telescope has looked Farther, much farther than that Hubble telescope ever looked and is seeing things that nobody has ever seen before and they're beginning to question the, the very laws of physics because of what they are seeing. Why, when you consider the vastness and the greatness of his creation, and we, we can never exhaust the greatness of his creation. I don't care what kind of telescope we put in there. It's impossible for us to travel those vast distances living the way we live in this human body because the human body cannot exist approaching the, the speed of what you're going to do just going to 
turn into energy, but can energy think? I don't know. But then, how are you going to get back where you were? Okay, I'm tired of being just pure energy. I'm ready to go back being a man again. I'd like to have a Diet Coke and a cheeseburger. How, how do you do that? I mean, it's, so, you know, there are a lot of imaginations about those things. But God has made us the way that we are and, and has given us uh, the, the latitude or, or, or the circumference of existence has given us our minds and our souls, our spirits and all this. And we have the capacity to worship the creator. Why would you want to limit yourself to putting anything ahead of God? When you can just by, bypass it all and go right to the one who made everything. And these are those whom God calls to himself. They are his covenant people. And so here's the warning. Any likeness of anything that I've created is a terrible sin. It doesn't matter. And you notice that he starts with the likeness of humanity, male or female. And then he goes from there to the likeness of, of beasts. And then from there to the likeness of uh, of the stars, moon, sun that are in heaven, the host of heaven. Now, here's an interesting observation of this passage of scripture. Idolatry against which God's people are warned moves in reverse order of creation. You see that? Starts with man who was the highest order of creation, the last thing. But idolatry starts with man and then it moves from there to the host of heaven, which was the first thing, you know? So idolatry, false worship is just flipped upside down. It's always centered. It starts by being centered on man. Then it moves from there to being centered on the creation, the creature rather than the creator. Now this is back to Romans 1. Why are you, why are you, you know, this is a terrible thing to worship the creature above the creator. It's an awful, well, he's described it here. It's upside down. In other words, it's reprobate. Being upside down, it's evil. Which Yahweh your God assigned to everybody under the entire heaven. You're drawn away to bow, to prostrate yourselves before them and worship them. The sad thing is, fallen man has that propensity to flip the word of God, the way of God, to flip it upside down in our hearts and in our, our minds so that we adore, chase after, and use God's creation to replace God. We displace God with these things that are in his creation, which is, which is a terrible sin, which costs people everything. In the case of the Israelites, it costs them their land. And he warns them of that here in this passage of scripture. Okay, so how to prevent idolatry next? Remember your redemption. Verse 20, chapter 4. Yahweh took you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of the iron crucible in which you found yourselves, out of Egypt to be a people of his possession as of this day. 
of all of the nations of the world, having just reflected upon the greatness of the creator in the previous verses, of all the people in the world, God chose these physical descendants of Abraham to be his possession. So he takes great care with them. He makes them promises. He enters into a covenant. He becomes responsible for that covenant. That covenant cannot be uh, the, 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 uh, the covenant about which is spoken of cannot be something that man can cause to be fulfilled. It has to come from God. We don't have the power to maintain that, uh, that covenant. Only God has that power. Now there are conditional, the, the land, the covenant of the land is a conditional covenant. And yet it is contained within an eternal covenant that sees the people of God still coming back to their land after a period of being displaced because of sin. God's peculiar possession. He took you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. This was no small thing. Egypt, the greatest power in the world. And Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites thought of as the worst kind of people in the world. When we were studying Genesis and then Exodus, and, and we were in the parlor when we studied those on Sunday nights, there was, we learned how the Egyptians considered themselves as elites, elitists. They considered the Israelites as the lowest form of human life on the bottom of, of uh, culture and society. Nothing to the Egyptian who considered himself the highest was lower or nastier than an Israelite who to them was the lowest. And the lowest without having an army, without having weapons, having only the covenant of God, the lowest really defeated the highest and came out of Egypt. This is a miracle. This is not something that man could have done for himself. This is something that, that was accomplished through the mighty hand of God. He redeemed them. He, paid the, he bought them out. He redeemed them out of the slavery wherein they were to be found. And they were nothing. Nobody thought anything of Israelites of any high thought at all except God who way back hundreds of years earlier had made this irrevocable promise with Abraham regarding his physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob. He gave them a land. It was their land. It is their land. It will always be their land. There's nothing that stops that. His, his possession, he redeemed them. He brought them out. Remember your redemption. Another way to prevent idolatry. Yet still another way is to remember how God punished the leader. Not even Moses was exempt from the warnings and the law and the word of God. Yahweh was angry with me because of you. 
And he swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not come into the good land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. Moses said, I will die in this land. They're still on that side of the Jordan. I will not cross the Jordan. You, however, will cross and you will possess this good land. Moses is saying God will provide leadership. There are people who are charged with and spiritually empowered to provide this leadership. God makes sure that it happens. But even those people are under strict rules from Yahweh. So therefore, even though I will die on this side of the Jordan and I will not be able to enter into the promised land, there'll still be a leader because Yahweh is the true and living God. You are his possession. He's not going to forsake you. He'll be with you. And no one of us, myself included, is exempt from this law of God, the, the divine origin of the law, which is above us and over us and is our strength in, in the provision that God gives to his people. And Moses had that moment of weakness. And so the people then are warned with regard to preventing idolatry, how serious God is regarding his law, his word. The next way to prevent idolatry is to remember the covenant that God has made uh, with his people. Beware, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he made with you. He made with you. You did not make it with him. He made it with you. This whole thing originates with God. It's, it's seen, it's watched over by God. It is caused to work because of the power of God. And make for yourselves, lest you forget the covenant, and make for yourselves a graven image, the likeness of anything which Yahweh your God has forbidden you. You belong to God. You're God's people. God's not going to let you insult him that way. There are consequences. You see, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh, your God. Now at the center of that covenant is to worship only God and not to place any graven image or any other so-called God ahead of God. Worship only God. But if you forget the covenant and you make for yourselves a graven image, bad things are going to happen. The wrath of God. You should also remember the wrath of God. Verse 24. For Yahweh, Yahweh your God is a consuming fire. God jealous. Jealous God. Kind of a kind of a title. <clears throat> he is he is jealous God. He won't put up with even the thought that you could be shared 
with other gods. He is a consuming fire. So the jealous God, if he, if his jealousy is provoked, will send forth consuming fire. The wrath of God will come upon him. Now these people to whom Moses is speaking should remember how the wrath of God on occasion had already fallen on the generation of their fathers. And it should be in fairly fresh memory to them. Remember his wrath. He is a wrathful God because he's a jealous God. He won't share you. You're his people. He is your God and he is a consuming fire. His wrath can fall. Next, to prevent idolatry, remember that God could punish you at any point in time when you have breached your position, the position that God will place you in. When? Okay, when? This means throughout the history of the people, when you beget children and children's children, you will be long established in the land and you become corrupt and make a graven image, the likeness of anything, and do evil in the eyes of Yahweh your God to provoke him to anger, I call as witness against you this very day, the heaven and the earth, that you will speedily and utterly perish from the land to which you cross the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days upon it, but will be utterly destroyed. It's a prophecy. When this happens, when you forsake the true and living God, we're studying about that on Wednesday nights. The, the idolatry of Solomon, which resulted in the time of his son as king, the division of the kingdom, the creation of a northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, and then the separation of the northern people from the temple and the priesthood and the son of David as the king, they fell speedily and spiraled into complete and utter idolatry until finally they were utterly destroyed as a nation, displaced and dispersed into the world as a people, so-called the 10 lost tribes of Israel because they had provoked God to anger 120 years or so later, it happened to the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar. But in both cases, they were removed from the land. This wonderful, beautiful homeland. A place where they could live and worship God and be obedient to him and be prosperous. They lost it. Because they sinned against the true and living God and they brought into their lives idolatry and false religion. When that happens, you'll lose possession of the land. Now that law, if you want to go forward in time to where the southern kingdom of Judah lost possession of their land, from then on, and even until today in a sense, Jerusalem has always been trodden under by the Gentiles. It's a, it's a shameful and humiliating thing. God warned them. In some small aspect, some of them have come back to the land and it has been granted to them by the power of the Gentiles, yet there's a greater day than that 
when Christ comes in glory, establishes his kingdom on earth and gives to them the complete boundaries of that land and makes them the most favored nation of all of the people in that kingdom in that day. So in a sense, although Jews are returning uh, to Israel and there is a nation of Israel, they have not completely uh, inhabited or enjoyed the land that God promised them. They never have actually, not even in the time of Solomon. They haven't enjoyed the entire boundary of the land. Only Christ can do that. So there's still, though there is a land of Egypt and there are Jews there and there are great things that are happening and prophecies are being fulfilled, I don't doubt that at all. Yet, in a sense, they're still dispossessed, but up until the time they were made a nation, they were displaced into the world, all around the world because of sin. And that displacement went on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the shame of their failure followed them into every land and, for, and people just had a, a natural hatred again. They still do against, against the Jew. And it's seen in our nation today with the riots and the stuff going on in universities and across the land, even among some members of Congress, this hatred of the Jew. But you know, it won't always be that way. There will come a time when they're, when they're considered uh, wonderful people, especially after the Gog and Magog war, although that's a false thing that only lasts for a while. And then comes, of course, the time of Christ ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. But what caused them to lose it? What caused them to be utterly dispossessed from the land? Well, idolatry, sin, putting the world, anything in the world, anything, look what he says up here. Uh, the likeness of anything ahead of Yahweh your God, you will lose the land. And that'd be a terrible shame. So that's a warning from God. Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples and you will remain few in number among the nations to where Yahweh will lead you. And there you will worship God's man's handiwork, wood and stone, which neither see, hear, eat, nor smell. Look at that. Now take note of it. God's, you'll worship God's and you'll worship man's handiwork. The, the, the pursuit of economic prosperity, the things of, of man. And that's an inanimate thing that displaces God. I've told you, I suppose, several times I was well acquainted with Jews in the clothing business. I don't know if it's that way today or not, but in those days, they literally controlled the clothing business. And a very wealthy man was the owner of a very large line of men's suits that specialized in 
Big man suits, big and tall. We had suits up to 72. We had waists up to 78. I mean, this is to watch these guys try to come through the front door. And then how are you going to fit them? Because the tape measure only went to 60 inches. You know, you had to put a, you had to tie them together and put a weight on one end, throw it around, see if you could catch it to measure a guy's waist. Well, the guy that owned the largest suit company that produced dress suits for big and tall men. We had a guy one time, he came in, he was seven foot four inches. We fit him, we fitted him. We, we, we can I use the phrase pride? We took pride in that. We, we, we were happy to be able to provide this service for men who otherwise, they came from everywhere back in those days. And the guy that owned the company, the suit company was called V-Line. I doubt the man is alive today, but I won't call his name anyway. Um, he and daddy could get into these arguments. If you've ever seen two Jewish people argue over a price of something, he called daddy a Jew. And daddy would say, thank you, my master is a Jew. And daddy, <laughs> this guy, even that guy couldn't out-argue my daddy. So this guy and I, he's a bit older than me, but we became friends. And in the downtime, when daddy was out there busy doing other things, he would patiently wait to see daddy to sell him the next season of, of suits. And we would talk. And I asked him about his spiritual life. And he had a winsome personality. About every other word was a pretty bad cuss word, but, but that's just the way those people up in that part of the country are, I guess. Um, <clears throat> he would say, well, he said, I'm what you call a modern Jew. He went through the, there's an Orthodox Jew, there's a traditional Jew, there's a modern Jew, two or three other kinds of Jews. And he said, a modern Jew just relies on the strength of the faith of Abraham because God promised to look over his people from then on when God declared him righteous. So it was as though he was saying that Abraham was his Christ. That's basically what he was saying. Now, I didn't want to get into a heavy art. I just presented, and he knew as much about Christianity, really, as I did. Uh, he said, I know where you're coming from. I understand all that. We just don't accept it, you know, and we just depend on us. So when you die, you're confident that Abraham, whatever it was that he did in his day, I guess by offering up his son Isaac, that's good enough for you. He said, that's the way, that's the way it is with us. Yeah, we, we, we know that our father Abraham settled, you know, he settled all the issues for us and that's, that's where we are. And I told him, I said, I just, I, I'm, I feel badly for you. I like you. I appreciate our friendship, but I, I really hurt for you in that regard. And he just laughed about it and not, you know, he just, he, he had a hard heart, you know, a nice guy with a hardened heart. That's what he thought. 
Now, he is one of those Jews, one of them among, among Israel, who is dispersed across the world. And he's one, there were others, but he is one I remember particularly um, because I was, I was close to there. Others uh, who, who, who I knew that uh, there, was, there was another guy who represented a company from, uh, from North Carolina and it was, uh, I think it was dresses, and um, I can't remember. It's been too long. Uh, but he, uh, he was, he was a, a, a Jew, and he wouldn't even talk things. He'd rather slide through that conversation to, you know, football or whatever. Dispersed among the people. Hated among the people. Designated, I've, I, we've all lived through this. When someone is a Jew, you think of that person as a Jew. I went to, I went all the way through school from first grade to graduation. I'm not going to call his name either. He was a nice kid growing up. We would play football together. We would go out and recess together and do all these things. Go to the other kids' birthday parties together. He was a nice kid. I liked him. He was a friend of mine. Then we got in high school and he became something else. I don't know. And uh, he was a very, he was a very strict Jew. His, apparently his parents were very strict in their Jewishness. And one day we were juniors in high school. And there was something that the high school was doing that would honor a particular Christian thing. I can't remember what it was, but we were going to go to an assembly and uh, his locker was close to mine. I said, well, you want to go sit with us? And he cursed Christianity with horrible curse words and said that he would not go to any of these Christian things. Uh, and I was somewhat puzzled, but I came to realize it was because he was a Jew and he despised Christians. As through the years, Christians have despised Jews. Well, here it is, the warning. You'll be scattered. You'll do the other things and you won't have the sensitivity to do what, you're, what you were called out to do as my possession. And all of that is part of my punishment upon you because of your idolatry in the land, the sin. Here's the second part. Returning to God after such disobedience. Verses 29 through 31. Returning after the misery of sin. And from there, scattered into the world, you will seek Yahweh, your God, and you will find him. If you seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You see, there's a day coming, and I think we're fast approaching it. I, I listened to the guy, Amir, we listened to him, and he was talking about how before this thing with Hamas, the people were engrossed in materialism and, 
And uh, there was, you know, although they were Jews, they didn't think of their Jewish life as something special. They didn't think anything of worship or anything of their traditions. They just were in the world and never thought anything about it. But he said just a few days ago, he said, I've noticed a difference. People now are coming together and they're reading the Psalms and the prophets together in city squares and they're building fires and they're calling upon the God of Abraham. Now, until they include Christ in that, they're not going to get very far, but it is a move that Amir had never seen in his lifetime. He's a man in his fifties, I think. And uh, it was very interesting for me to think about that because other other people within the church who have observed this, they're saying, you know, we could be on the cusp of the prophetic war of, of Ezekiel, which leads, which leads quickly into the tribulation and then the end of the age. It's very interesting because there's so much agreement on it now. There's not been that much agreement over the years. Uh, but a lot of people are saying this is, this is falling in line so quickly and in such a way that it looks like it, we could just be days or weeks away from what Ezekiel spoke about. So if you think of what the Bible says, the Bible says that finally in the tribulation, Israel is saved. This is what exactly is said here. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, you'll seek the Lord your God and you'll find him. When you're distressed and all of these things happen upon you in the end of days, then you will return to Yahweh your God and obey him. How so? Zechariah, they will look upon the one whom they pierced. They will come with great mourning and grieving and repentance. By groups, by families, by couples, by individuals, Zechariah says. And they'll be saved by looking upon the one whom they pierced. The scales will fall from their eyes and they will become obedient to the true Christ, the true Messiah. So here now is a declaration of the mercy of God who keeps his covenant. For Yahweh your God is God merciful. It's kind of like a title. He is God merciful. He will not let you loose or destroy you. Neither will he forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. These are especially exciting days when we think of how we could be riding the crest of the wave that's leading us right into these things that are spoken about by Moses who declared these things on that side of the Jordan to that first generation who went across into Canaan and reminded them 
of the covenant-keeping God. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We're excited that you've called us to yourself, and we're humbled and thankful. And so, Lord, as we observe things in this life, help us to understand that these are the things that are happening because of the word that came forth from the midst of the fire. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen.